0: Welcome back to Find the Outside, the podcast. We are so excited to have people back today because we have a phenomenal guest, Deanna James, who is the president, I know, of the St. Croix Foundation. And many of you who have heard me talk about my work have inevitably heard me talk about St. Croix and what a, what a place for systems change it is. And Deanna has a very special and specific role as the head, the president of one of the local community foundations. And she is doing philanthropy unlike anything you've ever heard of. She's also been the head of the foundation since 2015. She's the first person of color to lead any of the community foundations across um, the territories. And so we are just very excited to dive in with her and hear what she's up to. Also, just to say, Tim and I adore her. Like, That's we just, true. That is just true. completely adore her. For real. Yeah. And so like, you know, you know, we bring really cool people on this podcast and Deanna is like one of the coolest. So that's my intro. What you got, Tim?
1: Well, Deanna, is there anything else you want to say? Haven't heard Tuesday introduce you like that, is there anything that is kind of up for you or or feels important about what you're up to at the moment that should be part of how we front end this? What what you got?
2: No, that like, I I think so much of how I have led has been connected to you all. Hmm. And um, there's very little like, I think about, um, about the work that we do in the Virgin Islands that's not deeply, deeply intertwined with how you all lead and how you all support social change in you know, mm. the world. So I like you know, this is the perfect place for me to spend a Monday morning or afternoon um, <laughs> with two very special people who have um, informed so much of our work here in the Virgin Islands.
1: You know, I was, I was looking at I was looking at the bio that we chose not to read, and then Tuesday <laughs> said in the lead up, she was like, "Tim, uh, if we don't read the bio, you're going to miss some really important things." So I was like, "Oh, I'm going to go read the bio." And uh, um, but one of the things that struck me when I was reading it was this balance between, you know, Tuesday you introduced the SCF as the, the local foundation, but that you're in a concerted effort to build a national network, but you're a local foundation. Yeah right yeah. so could you just speak a little bit to that like what 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 were you up to what do you mean
2: <laughs> so i mean part on? part of like i think how i've had to think about the work that we lead because we sit in this isolated you know little uh possession colony of the of the us is i have to think uh I have to think more broadly about how to make sure that, you know, our nonprofits that are doing a lot of the, you know, frontline uh, social change work have the supports that they need Hmm. to do that work. And, you know, having a very shallow donor pool here means that we have to think more universally about how to, to marshal resources, which is our mission to marshal resources, um, to support you know our local civic sector, on the other end of it, as a place-based foundation that sits in, in communion with other national foundations, the frustration of mm. seeing how philanthropy could be done differently and watching the reality, which is, that philanthropy is very conventional, it's very fixed. And while it funds a social change, the system of philanthropy itself is very fixed and um, not open to change. And Mm -hmm. so I, I feel like I sit in this really interesting space where I need national philanthropy to do the work that we're doing here, but also like compelled to spur change within the field as well, mm-hmm. and so um, the way to do all that is we have to build a larger network of partners and uh, national, uh, you know, relationships that will allow us to do this work. Us, and when I say us, me and the nonprofits that I work with every day, and then also for us, the foundation, Saint Croix Foundation, to be part of movement building within the field of philanthropy.
1: Mm, right. It's great. It's a wicked, it's such a good tension to be working in and to have you articulate it that way. Thank you.
2: And I'm
0: going to just push a little bit more because <laughs> I feel like I work with a lot of folks in philanthropy who mm-hmm. say the field must change. We have to change. We have to change the fields. Right. And so it's like, there's a gaze from philanthropy back onto itself saying we must change. Mm-hmm. And, and one could think with what you just said, like you're part of that gazing back and saying, we must change. My experience of you, however, mm-hmm. is that you actually are doing philanthropy differently. And so it's not just a, we must change because we are so conventional. You are an outlier in the philanthropic 100%. system 100%. Who is showing what could be different and kind of like coming up against that dominant system over and over and over. So can you talk a little bit about your location and what is it, especially that you're doing different, even as you are part of this larger system?
2: And so, you know, I've been at the foundation for many years. I've been at the foundation for uh, 20 years. We actually celebrated our 33rd anniversary yesterday. Wow. Uh Wow. Congratulations. Uh, Thank you. And so um, we, you know, I think everything about how I lead today is connected to how we were conceived. Um, We were conceived by... Activists Hmm. who um, were existing, and the way I look at it, were existing in in like government-sanctioned inequity, right? As Mm -hmm. as a colony, as a territory of the U.S., in crisis on the heels of Hurricane Hugo. When in most disasters, national philanthropy sort of, you know, they they come in, they swoop in and they provide support to communities that are, are in the process, early process of rebuilding. Well, as luck would have it, when the foundation was like, when they were conceptualizing the foundation, immediately after Hurricane Hugo, national philanthropy was plugged in for about 10 days. Mm. And then because Hurricane Hugo hit South Carolina right after the Virgin Islands, all of the focus went there. And so they had to now figure out how to, how to build a community foundation without any lead Mm. gifts, any guidance or support from national funders. And because they were radical and they were sort of grassroots people, they, um, They were like, we've just got to figure it out on our own. We're going to build it for us. It's going to be responsive to our community. And what was really Mm -hmm. also interesting is that in addition to to the founders being grassroots activists, um, the two primary founders of the foundation, one was white, uh, European uh, Mm -hmm. transplant from, I think, Germany. And the other one was a grassroots Hmm. native, ancestral Virgin Islander very good friends that Mm. were sitting at this table with other, you know, grassroots local, um, stakeholders trying to think like, what does philanthropy have to look like for us if we didn't have anyone else to rely on? And so I think that really was the foundation for how we started just being outliers in the field because, um, most community foundations start with a benefactor, right? They start with like nice. someone who's, they, they start with a safety net. Mm-hmm. Um, we didn't start with a safety net. And so they had nothing to lose, right? They had nothing to lose and everything to gain. And so how they were thinking about like what to do was almost backwards. So mm-hmm. they were thinking, you know, we're in this like really, you know, 100 years, crisis, right? This was, you know, Hugo was supposed to be a hundred year storm, um, unprecedented. And government was on our our local government was on its back, federal government was distracted with with both the Virgin Islands and South Carolina, but mainly South Carolina.
1: Hmm.
2: And they were thinking like, who's on the front line? And so they immediately from the beginning, identified nonprofit, Hmm. um, leaders as their frontline support network, which in, you know, conventional philanthropy, they're the beneficiaries of the funds, right? right? Right. They're not, they don't, they're not sitting at the table helping you conceptualize how you're going to do your work, right? Nonprofits. Right. And, and so I think that in and of itself was the distinctive sort of like, you know, formula that made us different from the very beginning. And so one of the things that they decided to do early on was to become a fiscal sponsor. And their their, their thinking was, you know, as a conventional community foundation, you grant, you're just a grant, mainly just a grant maker, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And they were thinking, well, if we raise money and our sole objective for raising money is to grant those funds to nonprofits, It's sort of like that, uh, you know, that saying, you know, feed a man a fish and Mm -hmm. feed them for a day or teach a man to fish and you can feed them for life. And so they felt like the way to ensure a strong fortified third sector was to actually help them build capacity beyond Mm -hmm. just grant making. In addition to the fact that so many of our nonprofits were so low capacity that giving them money. Wasn't necessarily going to be the the fix, the the support that they needed. They needed much more sort of capacity building, infrastructure support that would allow them to be, um, you know, sustained. Sustainable nonprofits for right. the long haul, and so that in and of itself, you you can you know, pull most community foundations say look at you know fiscal sponsors like, like you know crossside like oh no that's too risky mm-hmm. you're too close to the nonprofits when right. you're a fiscal sponsor, and for us having served in that role for now I mean, almost thirty years, we have built muscle in places that conventional traditional philanthropy has not. Um, We know exactly what challenges, what kinds of assets our nonprofits are in a much more intimate and personalized Mm -hmm. way than conventional philanthropy. And that has allowed the work that we do as we're both a hybrid, uh, we're a hybrid uh, community foundation. So we're both grant maker and operating. We do run our own programs. Mm. But because of the intimate relationships we have with nonprofits, we know how to tailor programs in ways that fill gaps and can sort of like, you know, uh, complement the work and the investments that are already being uh, made by the nonprofits that we work with. And so it makes us that much more effective with what we do. We have, I, I believe we have more successes because we are so deeply connected with mm-hmm. the entire, you know, nonprofit sector here on the island of St. Croix in particular. And that is, is, you know, pat on the back for the foundation, but also incredibly frustrating when I sit in philanthropic circles and hear the kind of money that these organizations are sitting on that, you know, community foundations sit on today, more wealth Mm -hmm. than, you know, entire GDPs of major developed countries, right. Collectively. And by law, they only have to grant out five percent of what they sit on. So the hordes that they I call them hordes, the hordes that they sit on, they That's only crazy. have to by law uh, disperse five percent annually. Mm-hmm. And and yet when I look at like what they're granting. And what the impact of their grant making is, and then I look at what we have <laughs> as an unendowed foundation, and what we've been able to do. You know, I look at our portfolio of success with almost nothing. Mm-hmm. It really calls into question the efficacy of the field of right. philanthropy, and that right. has been really—it's um, something that's weighed heavily on me when I sit with my national peers mm. like what are we doing what are you doing and like why do we serve so differently and how do we sort of mm. begin to start having honest conversations about how to bridge that gap
1: it it seems so common sense doesn't it that you would be fully engaging and in meaningful relationship with the people you're seeking to impact but mm-hmm. like, how else could you possibly design programs or infrastructure or anything else that meets people's needs. If you don't know what's going on, this kind of like relational focus, Mm -hmm. you know, so common sense yet, of course, there's this, uh, conceptual idea that if you're too close, you can't make a good decision. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm I'm sure there's layers and layers and layers of logic in there, but you know, and so, uh, so it's just fantastic to hear that the, the, circumstances you were in really created the conditions for that to be kind of a founding principle. And so I, I can't help but wondering as you were kind of beginning to start getting into, and then I'm sitting at these national tables, you know, uh, with, with, with the, uh, with the folks sitting on their hordes of coin, mm-hmm. it makes me think of like dragons in J.R. Tolkien or something, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, and, uh, but like, how, how do you navigate the power differential there? You know, and, and like, you know, mm-hmm. very early on in the pod, you, mm-hmm. you know, you talk about the kind of. Uh, colonial positioning of of Saint Croix of the Virgin Islands, you know, mm-hmm. within the bigger picture of the U.S., you know. So it's not just that you're a you're a foundation that is turning mm-hmm. up with a fundamentally different approach. Mm-hmm. It's really the positioning of the place that you're seeking to serve as well. And I'm just wondering how you navigate that power differential, the inequity of power in that. How do you? How, how does your organization manage it? But also, like, how do you manage it? like how does Deanna James turn up to those meetings and be okay like how
2: I'm actually starting to pull away cuz yeah. it's been um, it's been a long haul for us and when when I started the foundation we had very few national partners and that changed there was a combination of me taking the helm around 2015 and knowing I had to do it differently and you know I tell this story often that you know my predecessor was a white man from the States and um, who was at the helm of the foundation for 22 years. And we had steady donors uh, that were, many of them were his friends. Um, and when he left, a lot of those don donors left with him. Some of them had started leaving him before he left, but um, for the most part, there was a steady decrease in donations when I took the helm. And I had to think, you know, on my feet, I had to think you know, m- much more strategically about how I would lead without the relationships that you know that the foundation had before um, before I took the helm. And I started building national relationships. And in the beginning, it was really exciting for us. You know, it was exciting. People were like really interested in what you're doing and how you're doing it. It's um, I've I you know became a, a member of a lot of national, organizations. Um, More recently, uh, as we started thinking about how to transfer the knowledge that we have gained, the understanding that we have built around philanthropy and the inequities within philanthropy, and trying to actually document that, the relationships, some of those relationships are beginning to feel extractive, um, are beginning to feel like oh we need you at the table because we need to gain as much you know wisdom and insight that you have to share but we're not willing to invest in your place
1: um, and
2: um and that's been a really hard like you know it's a, um a hard space for me to sit in because i have built some really amazing relationships without which I could not have been as successful as I've been in the last uh, you know, eight years. But I've also um, become a lot more cynical about the field of philanthropy. And that's like hard me because I, I so fundamentally believe in the nobility of philanthropy to like move systems, um, to change uh, and, and build new systems. But that's you know obviously the ideal. And I always say that's the ideal. Um, the reality of philanthropy is that it is just another sort of a colonial system. And, you know, when you start digging deep into like where all the money comes from, a lot of it came um, from unjust mm. uh, practices and systems um, that have persisted in the U.S. for many, many years. And the field has yet to reconcile that mm-hmm. truth, and so, um, I sit here as a representative of a colony working in a system and in a field that is still deeply tied to colonization and slavery, and you know how money was netted during that period of history and so I am um, it's hard it's i I sit in a like i I feel like i'm I'm more cynical than I've ever been about this field that I'm in and how I sit in it, um, but still committed to pushing and prodding and stirring a little bit Mm. um, for change. Yeah. Well,
0: and thank you for your willingness to do that Mm -hmm. as long as it is okay for your spirit and body Mm -hmm. and mind Mm -hmm. to do so. You know, Deanna, so much of what you said, I just like, I'm sure people listening are like tuning into it, but so much of what you said is just so very radical, right? It's mm-hmm. so just like I just like from the top to the bottom, right? Like one of the first things, phrases I said I wrote down that you said was, um, we live in government-sanctioned inequity mm-hmm. as a colony. You know what I mean? So that's like like that is I, I think that many people, maybe who listen to this podcast, at first didn't even know that St. Croix was part of the US, did not know about it being a colony, did not, you know. So there's like something you all are in there mm-hmm. that of course, of course you have lessons to teach. You also <laughs> said the traditional ways to give money. And I was like, cause I, I, people assume that's what philanthropy is for, mm-hmm. right? They assume. And, and what I hear from philanthropists all the time is like, we do got to figure out how to move into relationship with people. Like that's the tough nut to crack. And you all started in relationship with people. Right. And then you said, we probably get more successes, which made me want to go like, and I bet you think of success quite differently. Uh, Right. uh, And so I can imagine, uh, I can imagine like, I'm, people can't see me, but like, of course, big, we're going to call it big philanthropy for this, mm -hmm. but like comes in and kind of wants to subsume what you're doing. Right. Like, you know, something they don't know. And the way of philanthropy is, is like you said, extractive, And so
1: just 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 to give a visual there, choose had one smaller hand and then other big hand in, came in like a massive claw, and then just ate her other fist up. Like almost like Pac-Man eating those little dots in the video show. Right? I just wanna just just so the listeners get a visual of that, because it was great, you know, like is your, you said the words, but your hands said so much too.
0: Yes. Yeah. Thank you, Tim. That's, thank you, Tim. Because I'm just, it's, it's, how do you withstand that extraction? How do you um, shore up the nonprofits you work with, knowing that that is the pattern of the dominant system? What have you learned about withstanding that as a, a way of life, I imagine?
2: You know, I, I've i met, more recently met uh, folks in the field that are um, doing some really progressive work. And one of them, you know, Tuesday, you and I know, Uka Joshi Hansen, yeah. is yeah. you know, she wrote this book, The Future is Smart, that when we met her, we were in the process of doing a survey to find other place-based foundations like us. We're like, mm-hmm. we can't be alone. We need more <laughs> voices, yeah. um, more of our tribe to come together to, um, build, um, a case for mm-hmm. how to do philanthropy different. That's not just like, you know, rest that the, the, the burden is not rested on our, our shoulder to, right. To show the rest of the field some light. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we met her and she started talking about this, just much more humanitarian centered way of being and doing mm-hmm. this work. It was like, ugh, finally, we have like there, there are people who are coming into light. And right. I, I, right. um, the, the lesson for us is that we still, after 33 years are not endowed. Mm. Um, every day, every year is still a hustle mm. <laughs> for right. us as an organization. Uh-huh. Um, it's even, more of a hustle for our nonprofits because we can't support them as deeply as we would like to support them and we're still struggling to make the case to national philanthropy to make deeper investments in the only predominantly black territory uh-huh even in the midst of like these you know consensus agendas around racial equity right that right. i sit at the table of right. and sit with funders who have made, like, decisions about, like, not funding in the territories, not funding, and and even as they're starting to fund in the territories, not funding in the U.S. Virgin Islands, but funding in Puerto Rico, because Puerto Rico is bigger, and they have more impact if you fund in, you know, a bigger place, mm-hmm. which, you know... I have to always raise my hand and and say, not necessarily. And what about us? Mm-hmm. And so for for me, the, the the position that we sit in right now is really complicated. It's yeah. very complicated. And I stretched myself to try to reach more people, reach more partners in the field. And have now like this year decided, oh, I've got to pull it back. And it's mm. so interesting as I'm pulling back that everybody's like, no, we can't lose you. We can't lose your voice. We can't lose your, your wisdom. And what it's teaching me is a different way to hold power
1: mm. like that
2: and a different way to see my power. You know, when I call a partner and I say, hey, you know, we have been at this table for however long and we just have to, we have to step away. Yeah. We've got like, we've got to really prioritize our time and our resources and like being bad, like having people beg me, beg me to mm. say, no, we can't lose you. Mm-hmm. And me having to sit back, well, hey, that's really interesting. So I'm helping to build and to share, but n- no one is helping to support right. and build in my community. Mm. And... And so I'm in a place right now where I'm like trying to really reconcile the the value, the cost, benefit of Mm -hmm. the relationships, some of the relationships that we've uh, cultivated, and also really trying to um to get really clear about how much power we hold, which I think is so much more power than we might have thought we did. And how do you redirect? Uh um, that power in ways that like will will truly have measurable benefit for an impact for the community that I'm serving. And so that's where I feel like I'm in a, a place mm-hmm. of sort of retracting a little bit um, from some of those partnerships, but uh, sort of reconfiguring what engagement looks like moving forward. And how do I ensure that the power that we hold, the power that our nonprofits hold, I sit in so many places and I'm like, oh my God, our nonprofits are doing so much deeper work than that Mm -hmm. with no resources. And um, how do we like really, um, how do we recalculate um, how we sit, in the larger field of, of philanthropy. So that's kind of where I feel like I'm in a quieting down zone right now, Mm -hmm. just trying to, to understand like how much power has been built. And what do you do with that power now that you understand that you hold it?
1: It's, it's pretty cool that, uh, that saying, all right, I'm done here. (laughs) Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, Makes people aware of their Mm -hmm. need. For you, or mm-hmm. even how much they've been depending on you mm-hmm. without mm-hmm. perhaps any understanding of the attractive nature of it. Mm-hmm. You know, so there's something really strong about that. And there's also something amazing about that stepping away that is helping you realize how much you have to offer. And then it's giving you the kind of negotiating tool to arrive as a, to maybe reassert as a peer. Yeah. You, you know? Yeah.
2: yeah. That's that's I mean it, it's a, it's I, a- I love
1: I love that. There's <laughs> there's something there's something in the confidence of saying I no longer be here. I'm no longer willing to be here. That resets the balance in the relationship that just like brings it back up to Is that is that true? Is that your experience? It's just how I'm hearing it. No,
2: that is that's it. That is it. You've uh you know, you've captured exactly where we are right now accurately. We are really, and I think we spend a lot of time, like, I know everyone would say to us, you're doing such great work. Like we can't, like, we need you to be part of this, or we need you to show up here. And there was pride, like, you know, there's ego and pride in that, like that
1: people are. And rightly so, because you're working so hard and to be seen for it is so important. It's so
2: important. But then what happens is that you think that what you're committing to has more power or value than what you're bringing to it. And I think that that happened for quite some time. And I sat down and I'm like, well, hold a second. <laughs> um, the work that we're doing here in the Virgin Islands and, you know, Tim, you and Tuesday have been a huge part of a lot of that work mm. is light years ahead of so many of these partners that come here, that see us, that, you know, I have a glimmer of interest in like, what are you doing and how are you doing? Still confused about how we're doing it without the money. Hmm. And that's helped me to, I think it's helping me to step in and stand in my, my power, my, my personal and professional power, but also the power, the collective power that we hold here in the Virgin Islands. Because of our, you know, this word resilience. I hate that word. I'm trying. I keep trying <laughs> to not use it, but I use it because it's like, you know, it's been one of those in, words. Yeah, indoctrinated into our vocabulary. But I, um, but it's more ingenuity. Like that's the word mm. that, like, I yeah. there's like just innate, inherent ingenuity that is always been a part of how we exist here. And yeah. um, I didn't understand how much power that ingenuity held. Mm. And now, like really trying to recalculate, like re-recalculate the relationships, recalibrate relationships, um, and then re- recalculate, you know, how much power I am willing to give up, um, uh, without reciprocity. And so that, for me, is where where I am right now. It's a very interesting, it's a quiet place that I, I I'm finding myself in, but it's also. Um, it's it's part of the journey, my leadership journey, my philanthropy journey um, that is um, I feel at peace with. I feel like this yeah. is where I yeah. need to be and the world is shifting so fast that <sighs> for the first time I actually feel like we really may be far ahead of the field mm-hmm. when everything settles and how do I prepare my nonprofits and my organization to be ready to sort of capitalize on our place in this paradigm that I think is shifting pretty radically. I
0: love this. I mean, I, again, I feel, I feel sad and not surprised, right. That, Mm -hmm. you know, like the, the patterns would be repeated I know you're working on some theory of change right up. And I just like also want to in- encourage or ask you about if you're <laughs> thinking at all after this quiet place. Cause I just like really honoring the quiet place. Like that mm-hmm. seems like so yeah. smart, like just yeah. to get quiet and reflective yeah. and then move from there. And you what you're describing is like such a large pattern, right? I can't tell you. So I ran a a cohort for several years with with leaders who were looking at new economies, right? Mm -hmm. And inevitably, there would be kind of the darlings of the movement, almost always people of color, almost always doing groundbreaking work in their communities and being invited everywhere, being asked to speak at everything, being lauded for their genius ideas and many of them actually couldn't make payroll at their organizations right and so there is something that you have leaned into and have now settled right you're gonna say let me be quiet and like see how is it i want to use this power how would i that feels like it could serve And again, I'm not trying to rush you to serve, but you are, you, you serve. That's what you do. I know that about you. That could be useful in this ongoing pattern around the ingenuity of when you make, you make, you make a way out of no way. Right. That could actually be, like you said, you're way ahead. You know something. And actually you've said this since the moment I met you. You've said, Mm. St. Croix is the future Tuesday. (laughs) You know, like we're already living this future that everyone is trying so hard to like get to or guard against or, and it feels like this kind of like notes from the future is really could be a huge, um, yeah, um, a gift in. I don't know. I don't, yeah.
2: No, I mean, part of what I I think is that, so this is me having a much more spiritual conversation. Mm -hmm. I believe this, Work has been heady work. It's been intellectual work for a long time. I believe we're moving, we collectively, all of us, are moving into a a part of human existence that is going to demand different tools, spiritual tools. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And when I think of like the future of philanthropy, I believe like the universe is supporting the shift like this, the, the universe is, is, you know, it's guiding and prodding the shift in some ways faster than Mm -hmm. we could have ever anticipated. And so I look back and reflect on COVID, you know, COVID was this time when every single place on the planet was, like leveled, like the playing field was level. Everybody was experiencing the same thing at the same time and trying to figure out how to navigate this. And how interesting that the least developed places in the world, Africa and the Caribbean, in some ways did better, in many ways mm-hmm. did better than the more developed places. You know, Africa had the lowest, I think, death rate in the entire um, world. Wow. Um, it's one of the youngest countries in the world. Um, the Caribbean did did pretty well, relatively well. Uh, particularly, the, I always say the Latin Caribbean that is much more populated, not so much, but and, and much more developed. The the Black Caribbean did pretty well. When you think about like all the things that came to a head during COVID, food food security and food sovereignty economies of scale, like how even without the tourists coming communities, I think of there's one island that is just like my favorite island. It's our blue zone in the Caribbean. That's Dominica. Mm. They shut everything down. They were like, we can feed ourselves. We don't need, we don't need the ships to come here. We don't need the tourists to come here. We're going to suffer, but Mm. we'll, you know, when we get on the other end of this, we'll, we'll make up whatever losses. We've experienced. And I think about like the world as we see it now with, you know, the climate change realities that so many places are dealing right now. Our our children, as I do this podcast, our students are marching in the streets, um, demanding, you know, injustice around the climate, around heat, like, mm. you know, being in hot, un air-conditioned classrooms Mm. um, as the territory goes through one of the single record-breaking heat waves. Wow. Um, And thinking young people are leading that movement and how exciting that not, you know, the adults in the room, but the children stood up and said, enough. Mm -hmm. And that's not, you know, we're not behind the curve on that. We're ahead of the curve. That's going to be everyone's reality very soon. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm And how, we're, how are we collectively dealing with it? And for me, I just keep thinking the Virgin Islands is, you know, we're on the front lines of these issues and the challenges, but we're also on the front lines of the, the solutions to those problems. And I, as the head of the foundation, have to put my head down for a second and recognize the opportunity that is sitting in front of me to lead systems change here in a way that could be a model for systems change in other places. I can't be exclusively focused on systems change at the, you know, at the higher level of the field of philanthropy. um, When I feel like right now there is an opportunity here in the Virgin Islands to really do some things radically different, build some radical systems and to have philanthropy um, be uh, the seed um, the you know support for new systems that are are being built that really will be able to be scaled for other communities mm. um, that are are not where we are yet, but will be uh, you know uh, faced with a lot of the challenges that we're facing right now in a short order. Mm-hmm. So mm. for me it's it's me getting, like a feeling of getting one with where the universe is like the universe is saying everyone get ready yes. <laughs> there's, there's stuff that's going to be changing and how do mm-hmm. i make sure that we support change here in a way that will over time have broader implications even the the theory of change we were talking about that we're mapping out is a lot of it is reflective. It's it's us looking looking mm-hmm. within, looking being uh, interrogating how we do what we do, why we do what we do, right. why have we made the decisions that we've made, and then how do we then uh, map that out in a way that has uh, relevance and resonance with you know the larger field of philanthropy. So, yeah. So for me, it Mm -hmm. just, I I feel like I'm, the universe is asking me to be a little bit more myopic than Mm -hmm. I've been in the last several years. Mm -hmm. Um, and that all of us, I think at some degree philanthropy is big, you know, they're going to fix the, we're (laughs) going to, you know, they're going to fix the world. Right. Um, which they haven't. And even those that have been targeting, whether it's health equity or education equity, um, there's been backsliding of progress despite all of the money that has been, you know, dispersed and awarded and the money that has Mm -hmm. been hoarded. Um, And so I think all of us are going to be forced to become place-based foundations.
0: Uh,
2: Um, uh. All of us are going to have to be a little bit more myopic about the places we serve. And so we're ahead of the curve because we are really clear about who we serve and how we serve and, and where we serve And so I just want to get really good at that. Like I'm, we're good at it already, but I want to get gooder. I want (laughs) to (laughs) get, I want, I want to do like, you know, real uh, revolutionary work Mm. um, here in this community that hopefully will, you know, spur change more broadly in the field of philanthropy over time.
1: I, I love it that, um, you know, you hear this phrase, the canary and the coal mine, you know. We all are the that time. I said yeah. I've been saying
2: that all weekend. We we are the canary. And it's it's right. It's it's and it's fascinating. Like all the things that have been liabilities for us. You know, we're a colony. We're isolated. We sit on an island <laughs> in the middle of the Caribbean. Mm-hmm. Um, all those things now are without question our assets are like right. really Fundamental assets that are going to ensure that we get ahead of some things that I think a lot of more developed communities feel like they have time.
1: Right. Mm-hmm. Well, they have the, time. the interesting, yeah, the mm-hmm. interesting thing about the canaries is that they would die. That mm-hmm. was how they yeah. gave the warning. Right, yeah. and mm-hmm. uh, and I think what's fascinating about this is that like being on the front end of the impacts of yes. so many of these yes. multiple crises yes. we're facing, all over the world in our mm-hmm. communities, in our families, mm-hmm. and our, you know, you, you know, is that uh, at the same time you're on the forefront of also building the viable alternatives. Yes. Do, yeah. do, do you know what I mean? And yeah. it's actually that that's kind of amazing. Yeah. So, you know, it makes me think about not so much canaries in the coal mine, but like in Nova Scotia. You know, you know when spring is coming because the peepers come out. Mm-hmm. it's a particular particular type of frog that's got a really strong noise. You mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. but you are like that when the peepers start coming, in, you step outside and you can always hear the peepers, and you know mm-hmm. spring's come in. You know, and and so there's 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 something about. Mm-hmm. It's not just actually about being the canary in the coal mine. Mm-hmm. There's something that you're uh, pointing to that's coming down the pipeline that is a viable alternative too, and, uh, uh, there may may be, there may be a place-based metaphor there that speaks to it that is better than this Mm -hmm. kind of idea. It's not just that we're canary in the coal mine. We're actually the signifiers of viable alternatives.
2: Yeah. We're like, I mean, I think about, um, you know, I, I, my team, um, they laugh at me often that I am, um, the sentinel, right? So I'm the, (laughs) I'm always the one who's like, I think something's about to happen. Like, I I don't know, something in my gut is telling me that we've got to be prepared for something. And, um, I think we're, you know, that's a lot of the role that we're playing now. And I, there's a part of like our lack of resources that has been a necessary part of this journey like you know that, that you know when we were doing work in education years ago and we were working with the International Center for Leadership and Education and one of the things that they were saying they'd done this massive study to see like where are schools making like radical gains like just wh- where are the successes and they expected to find the successes in the you know wealthier um, the communities. And they didn't. They found them in the poorest communities. And it was because mm. they were the hungriest. They had nothing to lose. Um, and they would find these, I mean, going from like the bottom of the pack to, you know, the top. It's sort of like Finland being at the, mm-hmm. the very bottom of, you know, uh, educational performance standards globally, and then going to the top um, quietly. It's just they had nothing to lose. So they threw all of it out. And I think that's, they threw it all, you know, everything at the wall to see what would stick. And they came at like a systems approach which was focusing on on teacher education that was where they they directed most of their investments that allowed them to to leapfrog to the top and i think that there's something about like us struggling so long and so hard that has cultivated this got nothing to lose like we've got even you know as we work with our nonprofits and these are Really, really under resourced organizations that I sometimes just sit in awe. I sit in mm-hmm. awe what they're able to accomplish, and then I am sitting in, you know, places nationally where organizations have twenty times more resources that they have, and still like, oh, can we meet with your nonprofits to get? We just want to get a little bit more like inside of how they were able to do what they were able to do. And so, for me, you know, sitting in a field that is really about money, right? Philanthropy is about everybody. You think about philanthropy, you think this is where all the money is, um, that's outside of government and, and private sector. And the reality is maybe if it's not about money, then what is it about? And I think that's a right. huge part of like our theory of change. Like what is really at the root of the social change that philanthropy can seed? And if it's not money, then what is it? And, um, And, and so that's what we're trying to build our case around.
0: Well, I mean, that seems pretty radical, Deanna. What (laughs) if it's not about, (laughs) what if it's not about the money we can give? Mm -hmm. Whoa. Mm -hmm. Okay. Like, it just like, you can almost hear people's brains going ka-chunk, right? Mm -hmm. Like, like, Mm -hmm. that's, that's a real challenge to like, that's challenging the underlying assumption on which that system is based. Right? 100%. I want to ask you before we close, I want to ask mm-hmm. you, you were born and raised in St. Croix. I was. And obviously people who haven't been there would have some idea Caribbean Island, you know, like, okay, wonderful. But you've also talked about the challenges of, of being there. Right. And people having to be ingenious or having their ingenuity because there's not another choice. Like you have to be ingenious. And that has, I think, you know, been the, the legacy of, um, black folks and slavery, like, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So I'm curious what you might tell us that, you know, about St. Croix. Like, I just like, there's something also a deep love of place that like emanates from you. And I'm curious
2: how you might describe what you love about your place. So I always say, when I think about this place, that this, this is a. I think it's there's a vortex underneath, like underneath. Saint Croix, Saint Croix, has a pulse, mm.
1: and I also
2: I've you know I've had the the good, great pleasure of spending time and meeting folks uh, that are part of indigenous you know tribes. I lived in Arizona for a period of time, and I see so many similarities around. Mm-hmm our love of place here on St. Croix. And of course, I have family in St. Thomas. There's, it's a very different vibe over there. Um, but here on the island of St. Croix, there is a genuine spiritual love of land and place. Uh, uh. And I think that coupled with um, the the legacy of enslavement, our ancestral legacies, so we we were kind of like the breaking ground for enslaved Africans. They would train uh, Africans to be slaves here on the island of St. Croix by breaking them. They called it um, seasoning, you know, training uh, to be subservient. And so the spirit, the inherent spirit of the people here, I think is of revolutionaries. They, uh, they fought mm-hmm. they they fought from the very beginning to the end we we're one mm. of the few places that freed ourselves mm. from enslavement mm. um, in what started out as a bloodless revolution um, you know uh, enslaved Africans stealing all of the gunpowder from the guns of the Danes and um, And so when they realized that revolution was starting and a revolt was starting and they went to pick up their guns, there was no ammunition. Mm. And at the time the enslaved uh, people here on St. Croix outnumbered the slavers in such large numbers that they had to concede. Mm. Um, And so that story of revolution of ingenuity Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. is what, I think is still alive here. And what I see in the people that we work with every day. Um, and when I, I say that maybe it's not about the money, I, like I'm not saying that that's not me being a you know, cliche or anything. I like, it's, it's part of the story of this place. <laughs> And I feel like that is in me as a leader. I, I don't know how to not be a revolutionary. I don't know how to not push against the grain. I don't like my other half, Austin is always like, Deanna, do you have to fight every battle? And I was like, no, but there's some that like demand a certain level of courage mm. and conviction. And I am not afraid of like standing alone sometimes.
1: Mm.
2: And so um, even in this this work of philanthropy. Um, where, you know, we've felt alone for a long time and we continue to feel isolated um, now for the first time that isolation feels empowering in a way that I've never felt before. And, wow. Um, wow. Just starting to stand in that. Um, and like, yeah, it's okay to, to be alone on this. There's something really truly divine about how we exist in philanthropy, how we have evolved unlike, uh, very few, uh, community foundations and like how to let's, let's interrogate that a little more and then let's exploit that to the degree that we can in a benevolent way, obviously, um, exploit that, that power that we hold, um, to, you know, to benefit our community and also to hopefully be a beacon for the field. Mm.
1: Amazing. So as, as we bring the pod to a close, is there, is there a kind of a, is there anything you're carrying around in your back pocket at the moment that keeps you uplifted or keeps it could be a quote, could be something somebody said to you? Is there, is there any like little nugget that keeps you sharp at the moment?
2: Yes. And, um, Tuesday it's, it's yours. Um, so, uh, in one of our sessions, I remember I, like you, you said something, I'm sure you say it all the time, but like it changed my life. And that was that, you know. Relationship is the resolution. Mm. Mm. Um, we've we've modified that just a little bit. Relationship is the revolution. Ah. Oh. Um, wow. oh. And oh. that is what governs my work now. Mm. Um, that it's the relationships that you all have helped us cultivate with our nonprofits. Um the lessons you've taught us around systems thinking and systems change and how to like, how to really um, embody a systems lens and a systems approach to, uh, to the work that we do. I don't see it anywhere else. I believe that that's the missing link Mm. in the field of philanthropy. Is that how do you adjoin the power that, Multiple organizations have in a community to drive change, that change cannot be siloed. Mm. Um, It cannot be governed by a sort of disconnected approach to um, investments, which I think happens in philanthropy. We're going to fund, you know, Head Starts or we're going to fund healthcare. And now understanding the interconnectedness and intersections of, of all the organizations doing social change work and how when they sit together, the magic, mm. um, the divinity in that for me is wow. what has like really informed my work. So relationship is the revolution is my tagline. It's what I say <laughs> all the time now. It's what I believe I it, it is at the core of our theory of change. Amazing. Oh, I
0: love that. I love that. Don't think I'm not going to take it. <laughs> That's it's so yours. I'm part. It's yours. <laughs> That's so great, Deanna. Oh,
1: so. thank you so much for joining us on the pod. It's amazing. Mm-hmm.
0: Thank you. It was a pleasure. So good to be with you. And thank you, everyone, for listening in. My heart is so full and grateful right now. Thank you, everyone. We'll catch you next time.